Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Feliz Año Nuevo to all our listeners. Tonight's show is produced by Julieta Kuznir, Nina Serrano, Vanessa Bohm, and Vilma V. We jumpstart this new year by revisiting some important issues and hearing about new hope for health and well-being in the new year. We'll hear an update on the struggle to challenge the ban of Mexican-American studies programs in Arizona. Our very own Nina Serrano brings us a commentary on the long-awaited release of the Cuban Five. And we'll also hear about an organization that is trying to connect Latino families to the outdoors. Of course, music, arts, and culture is an important part of healing, so we'll be featuring poetry by Poetry for the People and the music of the Peruvian duo Alejandro y Maria Laura, whose last performance here in the Bay Area will be at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco this Sunday. All this and more, but first we begin with the news with Vilma V. Stay tuned. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending January 11th. IT. The ongoing street protests and political crisis over the scheduling of elections in Haiti continues into 2015. President Martelet is seeking a last-minute deal with the opposition to resolve the election standoff and prevent the dissolution of the Haitian parliament but it remains unclear whether he will reach an agreement with the Haitian Senate. Critics contend that Martelet wants to rule by decree and has been stalling elections for the last three years. Prime Minister Laurent Lamont resigned last December over the scheduling issue. Failure to reach an agreement could leave the country without a functioning government and Martelet ruling by decree. Yesterday was the fifth-year anniversary of the Haitian earthquake, which devastated the country and resulted in the death of over 300,000 Haitians. Brazil Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff was sworn in for her second term on January 1st of this year. Thousands of her supporters were red, the color of her Workers' Party, as they lined the streets to celebrate her inauguration in Brasilia. Nós. We will have to make changes to the economy, but we will not roll back any of the advances we have made, nor compromise our social project. I was re-elected to continue this mandate and to make the changes you want, and I promise you, I will make changes. Dignitaries from around the world, including presidents from Venezuela, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Chile, attended the event. Rousseff promised to extend social welfare programs and investigate allegations of corruption at the state-run oil company Petrobras. Rousseff was the chair of the Petrobras board for seven years until resigning in 2010. Rousseff announced that the motto for her second term will be, quote, Brazil, a country of education. Venezuela. Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro met briefly with U.S. Vice President Joe Biden when both attended Dilma Rousseff's inauguration in Brazil. Tensions between both countries remain high, particularly since Congress passed sanctions on high-level Venezuelan officials late last year. Maduro raised the sanctions issue while Biden reportedly said that relations could be improved if Venezuela agreed to release political prisoners. In response, Maduro stated that he would release opposition leader Leopoldo López in exchange for Puerto Rican political prisoner Oscar López Rivera, who has been in a U.S. federal prison for over three decades now. Both the current and former governors of Puerto Rico have advocated for the release of López Rivera, along with other elected officials, labor unions, NGOs, city councils, and bar associations. López Rivera celebrated his birthday last Tuesday on Three Kings Day with over half a million tweets demanding his release. Paraguay. The government of conservative president Horacio Cortés, who was elected to office in August 2013, announced that Albino Jara, a leader of Paraguay's Armed Peasant Association, was killed in a shootout last week. 
the violent confrontation occurred in a jungle area near the town of Cuero Fresco, some 300 miles north of the country's capital, Asuncion. The Armed Peasant Association, along with the Paraguayan People's Army, have been associated with violent clashes against the Paraguayan government for the past several years. Mexico. Last week, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto met with President Obama for the first time at the White House. Protesters braved frigid temperatures to hold up signs in Spanish demanding justice for the 43 male students who are believed to have been murdered back in September. Obama promised that the U.S. would stand alongside Mexico in its struggle with drug-related violence, stating, quote, Our commitment is to be a friend and supporter of Mexico in its efforts to eliminate the scourge of violence, end quote. Also last week, investigative journalist Anabel Hernandez released a report implicating the Mexican federal government in the massacre of the Ayotinapa students. Just this past weekend in Veracruz, 13 municipal police officers were arrested in connection with the abduction and disappearance of Mexican journalist Moises Sanchez, who was known for his coverage of the drug trade. According to Mexico's Commission on Human Rights, Veracruz is among the most dangerous Mexican states for a journalist to work in. Cuba. Finally, the biggest headline out of Latin America last year was, of course, the announcement by U.S. President Barack Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro of a major shift in U.S.-Cuban relations. And though this policy has been rooted in the best of intentions, no other nation joins us in imposing these sanctions, and it has had little effect. As these changes unfold, I look forward to engaging Congress in an honest and serious debate about lifting the embargo. Back in December, the Cuban political prisoners, known as the Cuban Five, were released in exchange for American political prisoners Alan Gross and another unidentified American who had been imprisoned in Cuba for over 20 years. While the U.S. embargo of Cuba remains in place until lifted by an act of Congress, diplomatic relations have begun with both sides committed to pursuing expanded trade communication, and cooperation. This past weekend, Cuba released over 50 opposition activists, many from the dissident group Patriotic Union of Cuba, or UMPACU. Meanwhile, the U.S. announced that Assistant Secretary of State Roberta Jacobson would lead a delegation to Havana later this month. Migration and the practicalities of reopening embassies in Washington, D.C. and Havana is set to be among the topics slated for discussion. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles with a commentary on the miracle of the freedom of the Cuban Five. It seemed as if it all happened so fast. By the time I'd read of the Cuban Five's freedom, they were miraculously already home. Even though Gerardo Hernandez, only the day before, had seemed doomed to serve his double lifetime sentences, he, Antonio Guerrero, and Ramon Labanino were already in the arms of their families and embraced as national heroes by the Cuban people. The first emailed photos showed Gerardo hugging his very pregnant wife, Adriana Perez, on the stage with the other of the five at a celebratory Silvio Rodriguez concert. While it was puzzling to see the photo of Adriana pregnant, soon other emails explained. During the earlier period, while U.S. and Cuban diplomats were negotiating around the prison care of Alan Gross, the Cuban negotiator had demanded that Gerardo's sperm be sent to the awaiting fertile womb of his wife, Adriana Perez, and it was. This was a miracle because Adriana's earlier requests to visit her husband had been turned down many times. 
It seemed as if Adriana and Gerardo's dream of having a baby together was not to be, as she was a woman nearing the end of her reproductive cycle. But although freedom was not in sight, Gerardo's sperm shot off and landed safely. This was not public knowledge, like so much of world diplomatic history. I looked again at the joyous photos of Gerardo's hands on Adriana's ripe belly. All five brothers, now free, stood together, the two relieved of the nagging worries for the still-captive three. The five had never broken ranks in the over 16 years of captivity, never opted for making deals despite the punishments. They kept the faith. After the new year came the welcome news that Gerardo and Adriana's baby, Gemma Hernandez Perez, was born by cesarean and showed the photos of the healthy baby and her happy parents. New life is always a miracle. Last week on January 4th at La Peña in Berkeley, La Raza Chronicles co-sponsored the community celebration of the release of the five and the normalization of relations between U.S. and Cuba. Speakers pointed out how the Cuban five were part of the U.S. movement to free political prisoners and reform the penal system, including the abolition of solitary confinement and torture. These struggles still continue. May the new year bring the freedom from Umuya, Abu Jamal, Leonard Peltier, Oscar Lopez, and so many others. At the La Peña event, I shared excerpts of a poem sent to us by the noted Cuban poet Pablo Armando Fernandez, written on the occasion of the Freedom of the Five. Fernandez's numerology poem, entitled Revealing Numbers, needs some contextual framing to be best understood. The revealing numbers refer to the divination system in the Afro-Cuban Santeria tradition. In this system of foretelling and insight, the number eight signifies the highest level of good, the all-powerful, all-wisdom, and all-light. The date, September 8th, refers to the Saint's Day, honoring the patron saint of Cuba, known by her synchronized Christian name as Our Lady of Charity, and also known, more familiarly, as Ochun. On her saint's day, September 8th, Caridad arrives to El Cobre, her shrine on a shining pyrite hill in Oriente province. The number 17 is the date of the Cuban Five's return to Cuba. The poem, Revealing Numbers, by Pablo Armando Fernandez, is a numerology poem. I'm going to read you excerpts from a very loose translation. Revealing numbers of preordained destinies. In September, Maria de Caridad, or Our Lady of Charity, arrives on the eighth day with pure light of supreme will to reveal the truth. The sum of the days and months in letters and months gives us the number 17, which is the date that brought us the freedom of our beloved heroes, innocent and defended. Our nation is all of humanity, and it calls us to loyalty. The year we are now welcoming is 2015, whose numbers add up to... Thanks for listening. This has been Nina Serrano reading to you from a poem by Pablo Armando Fernandez, Cuban poet, and wishing you all a very happy new year and leaving you with a song by Cuban composer Silvio Rodriguez. Como gasto papel recordándote, como me haces hablar en el silencio. Como no te me quitas de las ganas, aunque nadie me ve nunca contigo. Y como pasa el tiempo, que de pronto son años sin pasar tú por mí. 
detenida te doy una canción si abro una puerta y de la sombra sales tú te doy una canción de madrugada cuando más quiero tu luz te doy una canción cuando apareces el misterio del amor y si no lo apareces no me importa yo te doy una canción si miro un poco afuera me detengo la ciudad se derrumba y yo cantando la gente que me odia y que me quiere no me va a perdonar que me distraiga creen que lo digo todo que me juego la vida porque no te conocen ni te sienten te doy una canción y hago un discurso sobre mi derecho a hablar te doy una canción con mis dos manos con las mismas de matar te doy una canción y digo patria hablando para ti te doy una canción como un disparo como un libro una palabra una guerrilla como doy el listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, I have on the line with me Carlos Hagdorn. He is a professor of ethnic studies in Napa Valley. Thank you so much for joining us, Carlos. Thank you for having me, Julieta. Carlos, so you were at the courthouse yesterday. Right now, we are in the midst of the federal appeals court hearing the Arizona ethnic studies ban, specifically around the Mexican-American studies program serving the community there. Can you first off, tell us about what yesterday was all about and why it's important for all of us to know about? Sure. So yesterday was a historic landmark case that was being heard at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals around the banning of the famous and incredibly academically successful program, Mexican-American Studies Program in Tucson, Arizona, a few years ago. And so yesterday, the Court of Appeals heard, heard the case. It was historic in the history of ethnic studies, but more so for our nation as not just Chicanos, Latinos, but as people of color and as people in, in this nation, we heard yesterday in the court our narrative, our Chicano narrative on trial. So it was, it was historic. So yesterday you came down to San Francisco, as did many, to show support for ethnic studies and also to show those that are really painting this story, this distorted vision that ethnic studies or Mexican-American studies programs create feelings of hatred and separatism and actually can lead to the overthrow of the U.S. government. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the arguments that are being used against ethnic studies programs? Sure. The argument being used in Arizona was that the Mexican-American studies was promoting uh, the overthrow of the U.S. government. It was designed primarily for pupils of a particular racial ethnic group. It was treating pupils as, an, as a group rather than as individuals. Um, they also said it was promoting resentment towards another race ethnic group. Um, so those were the four areas that the House Bill 2281 that the state of Arizona passed were using 
to bring down the Mexican American Studies program. We know, we know clearly. Both, I mean, I know as an ethnic studies professor, as an ethnic studies student, and um, being in constant dialogue with my students today, that you know, ethnic studies is quite the contrary. It, of course, we do focus on particular um, ethnic racial groups, but we do so in order to get to know ourselves or know our know others because we live in an incredibly diverse nation. And with the intent of transformation, with the intent of healing, with the intent of being conscious, and with the intent of love, you know. And so the the Mexican-American Studies program out of Tucson was generating high levels of academic success as shown through different case studies and data analysis, but it was also producing a student consciousness based on love, based on social justice, based on the commitment to improve our our own communities. You know, I mean, it's truly the battle of ideologies, if you will. And the state of Arizona has no doubt taken the rocks out of history, while us in the field of ethnic studies and in our classrooms and in our communities are truly trying to do our our very best progressing our our communities and, and our country. So yesterday, when you were in San Francisco at the Ninth District Court of Appeals, you actually heard from two Tucson teens that talked about how they're not being able to access this programming that would have improved their educational outcomes, how that was so detrimental to them. They're the ones that have led this case to overturn the laws banning the Mexican-American studies programs. Can you tell us about anything that you heard in the courtroom that stood out or that resonated or that stuck with you? I mean, there were quite a few things. One of them was that the attorney representing uh, the students, representing Maya Arce, who filed the lawsuit challenging Arizona's 2010 law, made the case around student achievement. And he brought to the judge's attention that the Mexican-American Studies program, that they had these great findings of academic success that students were producing out of the Mexican-American Studies program. And so the the attorney was, was arguing that this is about student achievement, and Arizona created a law and passed a law bringing down student achievement, basically saying, you know, this isn't about student achievement. And the attorney defending the state of Arizona literally said that student achievement is not relevant in this case. And so that was a huge highlight, and the judge was astonished by that, you know, and we all were. Education, the focus is about our students and our students succeeding academically, emotionally, socially civically, and so forth. And so that was a highlight yesterday in the in the courthouse. That's the voice of Carlos Hagedorn. He is an ethnic studies professor in Napa Valley. He also works with high school students around ethnic studies. So thank you so much, Carlos, for giving us this important update. This is historic. As you said, this case is going to play out and actually have ramifications across the country. And so if people are interested and want to bring ethnic studies programs to their schools or find out more about the importance of ethnic studies, where do you recommend they go or what can they do? Sure. Well, they should definitely you know, do some research around what is already happening in their communities. And so this yesterday's court case was one part of a bigger three-day weekend. On Saturday, we held the Ethnic Studies Solidarity event, and we saw folks from Texas, folks from Los Angeles, folks from, you know, here in the Napa Valley and the greater Bay Area come together. It was a diverse uh, day, and, you know, we came together to really share our stories, share our unique experiences and how we are bringing ethnic studies to our respective communities. And so there's a lot of different ways of finding out you can go to our Facebook page, Napa Valley Ethnic Studies Advocates. Tucson has an amazing teacher training model called Chito. You can go to Texas, uh, formed an organization called Libro Traficante. Uh, you know, you can research online, Google Los Angeles Ethnic Studies, and you will see all of the great energy that has been produced out of the L.A. area around the school board, the school district passing ethnic studies as an educational high school requirement. Um, you can Google San Francisco Ethnic Studies, and you'll see the great work that all of the teachers and schools and in partnership with San Francisco State Ethnic Studies are doing to implement uh, more ethnic studies courses around the high schools. So there's a lot of ways this is happening nationwide. Our main theme this past weekend was, was a proverb saying, they tried to bury us, they didn't know we were seeds. So while the Tucson program has had been shut down in 2010, what we saw was other communities sprouting up building their own ethnic studies classes and um, spaces in their own respective communities. And so 
there's a lot going on. This is this is truly the 21st century ethnic studies movement. You know, we're here. You know, and time to you know for folks to jump on the train and and keep it moving because that's where we're headed. That's the voice of Carlos Hagedorn. We've been talking about the court case that is appealing the ethnic studies ban in Tucson, Arizona. And I want to close with a quote by Maya Arce, who's one of the students that has brought forth this case. And she said in court yesterday, to study my history, my culture, my literature, and art is a basic human right. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros, Carlos. Thank you for joining us. Muchísimas gracias.
That was the song Estos Días by the Peruvian singer-songwriting duo Alejandro y María Laura off of their album Paracaídas. Good evening and welcome to Tierra y Libertad on La Raza Chronicles. My name is Marcelino Echeverria and today I am with Jose Gonzalez, Executive Director of Latino Outdoors. Hi Jose, how are you doing? Hola Marcelino, good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Would you give us a little bit on um, your organization, Latino Outdoors? No, definitely. So, yeah, so Mira is the founder and director of Latino Outdoors, and, you know, tagline is we're here to connect cultura with the outdoors. And what that means really is that we're working on different ways in which we want to support and identify the professional community in this field. You know, there's Latinos who do this work. And then how can then we exist as that community, build that identity, and then look for all the opportunities to support all the opportunities to connect our communities with outdoor experiences while also sharing that, those stories and that history. So is this primarily working with adult professionals or is this working with youth or what parts of the community? Yeah, so with Latino Outdoors, we're really working on uh, a couple of areas. So four components of that is that uh, we are work, we are we seek out the professionals in this field to remove that isolation factor when people say like I feel like I'm the only Latino or Latina doing this work and the identity that they carry whether they identify as Latino and what does that mean maybe Chicano uh, Hispano Tejano uh, by nationality uh, and not just in California across the U S and so then how can we build that community and then use that community to connect with youth so that the youth have role models that are these professionals that maybe we can make a mentoring relationship beyond just an outdoor experience and leverage these relationships to connect our families and our communities to the outdoors. So, for example, through an outing, you know, we, 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 we do an event where we get communities to connect to their local state park, for example, uh, or their closest uh, national park in that way. And then lastly, the storytelling. So when we talk about, so what does it mean to have a Latino or Latina identity with the outdoors? What does that look like? What does that sound like in terms of the, the people, right? The professionals, the outings, and the stories that come with that. Would you tell me a little bit about what are these outings like that you're organizing? For the outings themselves, they're, they're fantastic because the leaders for these outings, sometimes we say we, we want to get youth or we're going to families on the outdoor experiences. But then who's leading the outings and how is that representative of the communities? Uh, you know, we're saying you don't have to be Latino to be a leader in the outdoors. But when you have Latino leaders who do these outings, it's an extra connection that, family, that really resonates with the families. So what that means is that with Latino Outdoors as an organization, some of our leaders are youth, they're millennials, um, they're young professionals who then are in a leadership role. They plan the outings. Uh, they do their relationship building. Um, they, you know, they call they call the homes, and then they're the ones out there leading an outing uh, for families that can include three year olds, you know, moms, dad, grandparents, and they're out there basically showcasing themselves as role models while they are leading and presenting the information on these outdoor experiences. But then the families can relate to them because they've. You know, they, they have the same lived and shared experiences, whether they're taking them out to their local uh, park, uh, state park, uh, to their nearest national wildlife refuge, whether they're going out to the nearest national park, for example, or other uh, outdoor and open space. Right. So what are challenges to bringing Latinos to the outdoors? Money, lack of opportunity or... I mean, sometimes it's the kind of like all of the above, and okay. it de definitely depends on the community that you're working with, right? Some um, identified barriers for many communities might be transportation. You know, what does it take to be able to get everyone when an outdoor space isn't close by? It's, it's, it's far away by definition. Uh, or resources like money, right? What does it take to be able to have that uh, expendable income sometimes to have the equipment or the gear to get out there. And that's not true for all communities. You know, sometimes communities uh, can do all of that, but they just don't know where their nearest open space is in which they're going to be welcome and invited. Because sometimes you may know exactly where to go, but then you get there 
and you don't have that feeling of like, I belong here. You know, something doesn't feel right in terms of me wanting to be here to enjoy these spaces. So that's a barrier too. How can we build on Latino connection? Mm-hmm. And where does that Latino con- connection come from? Take for example, you know, we're on Twitter uh, at Latino Outdoors. We're on Instagram at Latino Outdoors. We're on Facebook at Latino Outdoors. To be present in that way is to be able to say, we have a presence and ownership of this space. Social media is one of the ways in which we're doing it to illustrate that presence and belonging in these outdoor spaces. So when I said, you know, we don't feel welcome, it may not be necessarily because we don't, it's not that we don't have a connection to these outdoor spaces. It's yet that we may be entering to an outdoor space that's been defined in different ways that aren't always reflective of our experiences. Because Latino connections to the outdoors, it's not new, right? It's not like all of a sudden, well, the outdoors, here we are, like all of a sudden, you know, it's a new connection, especially in places like the Southwest. You know, these are connections that have existed for generations. 500 years. 500 years, know. right? Yeah. Yes, the, and not just in history, but in, in, in culture and heritage. So as a mestizo, you know, if you have your indigenous roots, um, there's a lot of value in, in the outdoor and natural connections that carry through there. And same thing even if you're a recent immigrant and you're coming from a particular home country where you've also had that. You've had that connection and experience with land uh, and what it means to kind of live in, the, uh, in relation to the outdoors because it's been part of your upbringing and community, which may be slightly different than when you get to a protected area in the U.S., which by definition has to have a more separation This is the wilderness, this is us, Mm -hmm. civilization. What have been your experiences in the outdoors that have so inspired you to want to share this with others and your experiences with mentorship? There's definitely different answers to that. You know, one of the first things is just going online. Like I said, right now, Latino Outdoors, like we're on Instagram, right? Go at Latino Outdoors uh, and even just go and type in Latinos and Outdoors onto the search engine, onto Google. Like say, Google it and we pop up. But Prior to us starting this, we were not there. And it was just the irony that so many organizations were talking about how do we reach out to more Latino communities and connect them to conservation in the outdoors. But how was that visible? And so for me, you know, I knew it's like, hey, I'm not, I can't be the only one. I know I'm not the only one. I know I've come across other individuals. So how come we don't exist in community in the same way that I felt we do when it comes to immigration, right, to health, to education? Because the environment is, quote, unquote, a Latino issue, has been, just by definition of our experiences. I was born in Mexico, so I grew up with outdoor experiences, very connected to community and family. I came to the U.S., and when I had my first experiences with our, you know, state and national parks, and I was amazed. I'm like, these are beautiful spaces. So, and then I looked around, and I'm like, where do I see other people like me, and why might that be different? And then I get to the point where, as a professional, I've had uh, youth and, and other peers tell me, Jose, like, I want to be an outdoor professional who should I be talking to? How, where should I apply? Where can I connect with other individuals and opportunities so that I can be helped? Um, and I said, that's a good question because I'm looking for that too. So we're looking and looking and looking. So why don't we just start it and see where it takes us? Because the fact is we've had um, you know, self-identified Raza and Chicano who've been doing this since the 70s, the 80s, throughout the 90s. And now they're coming to me and saying, Jose, it's like we, this idea of like, how do we leverage our culture with the outdoors? You know, park rangers who've told me like, man, I wish like I have so much to share because, you know, throughout these past decades, we've wanted that to get out. And we just didn't necessarily have a, a way or a place to like fill in that identity. Where do you see this going in five to 10 years from now? So with Latino Outdoors, you know, when we look at, we officially started this project two years ago and seeing at what we've been able to do in that time as a volunteer run organization. The first thing is we need help. We need support. We need the resources to do this. But we're also showing that 
it's not a question of saying, well, we don't have the money, therefore nothing's going to get done. We have people that are saying, let's look at the ways we can make this happen. So the way other people can help and support is that in five to 10 years, I want to make sure that those resources are here. Organizations that say we care about diversity and inclusion, we care about like supporting Latino leadership, prove it. Show us by you know writing the check. Uh, let's partner. Let's make these resources happen so that when I asked the question two years ago, five years ago, where are the Latino-led organizations that are doing this work, you know, the Latino-led conservation and outdoor organizations, I said, where are they at a national level? Uh, and, and we're going to be one of those organizations. You know, we're going to fully own and promote and support that identity in partnership with others. Because Latino, Latino communities have been doing this for a long time, but now it's a question of making sure we're so present in that way in the future as well. Before we wrap up, would you please tell us how can people become more involved and learn more? As Latino Outdoors, we're a welcoming community, and we're growing as an organization and as a community. So there's a place for everybody. Look us up on Instagram, uh, Latino Outdoors, on Twitter, Latino Outdoors, on Facebook, Latino Outdoors, at latinooutdoors.org. The way that we look for support is if you are a conservation organization or individual that wants to connect with us, send us a note. What resources do you have that you can make available for us? If you're a Latino professional, welcome. How can you be of service to what we're trying to do to serve our communities? And also, if you're interested in being part of the organization, we have ambassador and uh, leadership roles in which we want to make sure that we're serving the community that you're coming from. And lastly, just as anyone, come in and uh, see maybe you can join an outing, see maybe that there's a, a role and opportunity. But the first step is just, you know, we always say, si se puede, right? Pero hazlo. So there's a lot of things we can do and that we want to be able to do. We just need the people to step up and help us do it. Thank you so much, Jose, for talking about Latino Outdoors. This is Tierra y Libertad. I am Marcelino, and thank you for listening to Tierra y Libertad on La Raza Chronicles. Hombre, cuídala. Si no se te va, cuídala. Recuerda
That was the song Cuídala, Olvídala by the Peruvian singer-songwriting duo Alejandro y María Laura off of their album Paracaídas. De la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. You can stay up on our show by liking us on Facebook and you can listen to our program again on soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Up next, we're going to feature some poets that were part of the Poetry for the People class taught by Harold Tereson at City College of San Francisco. This class draws on a long tradition of poetry and truth-telling, self and community empowerment. The class welcomes novice and veteran poets. Middle and high school poets can enroll for free and get concurrent enrollment. The class is UC-CSU transferable. People can check www.ccsf.edu to find out about next semester's classes, and we recommend all of Cronica's listeners open up their local community college list for arte and cultura classes wherever they live and take advantage of some of the great offerings. Again, people can find out more about Poetry for the People at www.ccsf.edu. And now we'll hear from a couple poets from this last semester's Poetry for the People class taught by Harold Tereson. Hi everyone, my name is Walid. I'm an international student from Saudi Arabia. My poem is Man of Arabia. I was born in the Arabian Peninsula, where the sand is like rainy gold. I am a barbarian, vicious to enemies, but gentle to women. Summer is a piece from hell. Winter lives inside caves, but my heart remains warm. The sun painted a tan on my forehead, so I can enlighten the whole earth with my wisdom. Ibn Sina is my neighbor. We shuffled innovations by simply shoveling our homemade food. Jerusalem prays toward the south of my heart, to my ancient holy chest. I lift up my dress to avoid the crystal river at King Solomon Castle, where Solomon had a dialogue with Queen of Sheba, Balqis. Ask me, about Qais and Layla, about the heat of love, before you read Romeo and Juliet. Ask me about Al-Khawarizmi before you solve a mathematical equation. Ask yourself first where the English numbers come from. Do you know the meaning of algebra in Arabic? It's the reunion of broken parts. That's the literal meaning of being an Arab, a true Arab, made of mix of clay and rose water, you bring out the Arab in me, the camel patient on thirst and hunger, the Arab spring, the pulse of palaces decorations, the family gathering on Friday all, where my grandparents transfer their traditions, when we want to shorten the week in one day, and then, yes, it's Friday. The smell of incense tours in my lungs, love fragrance the atmosphere, Grandchildren frock like clouds, so sweet like candy floss. All this become in the past, disappeared like fog through the sunlight. But in a sudden moment, I meet you. You bring out nostalgia. The East hugs the West. Abode melted in one heart, a garden rest in one chest. Thank you. My name is Monica Harris, and this is going to do my poem for me. My name's Vivian Talbot, and I'm Monique's friend, and she has two poems that she wants me to read. The first is called Eyes, and it's about, it's kind of self-explanatory, but it's regarding people and disabilities. Eyes. Why can't people see as if they don't have eyes? Then people couldn't see disabilities. You could not see the color of someone's skin. You could not see someone drooling. You could not see someone shaking. You could not see incontinent bags. 
You could not see facial disfigurements. You could not see how much a person weighs. Then we could see the world as yellow as the sun and as green as the grass. Come see the world as I do. You could not see someone's wrinkles. You could not see someone's hair color. You could not see someone's missing teeth. You could not see someone's missing limb. Then we can see the world as yellow as the sun and as green as the grass. Come see the world as I do. So this is a poem about Monique's brother, Stephen Harper. It's called Black Boy, Joy and Tears. Black boy, when I came home, I saw a little black baby boy lying in the arms of our mother. Joy, black boy, when you fell and hurt your knees, tears. Black boy, when you flew down the street, riding the back of my wheelchair, or when you grew and flew down the street in a car, joy. Black boy, when I left home in sight of you every day because I needed to leave and live my life, tears. Black boy, when we hung out and talked about the little people and how we respect them, joy. Black boy, when people gawked at your dreads and condemn you without knowing who you are, they should feel your heart, tears. Black boy, when we cruised to Santa Cruz, you tilted my wheelchair down steps so I could touch the sand even though your back twinged. Joy and tears. Black boy, when I phoned you and mom could not wake you, I screamed, please try, but mom could not wake you. Tears, tears, tears. 34 tears for 34 years for black boy. Joy forever. My name is Vivian Talbot. I'm reading poems by Monique Harris. She is in the CCSF Poetry for the People class. Sé que puedo estar sin ti, convivir con el recuerdo de tus ojos. Puedo, puedo dejar volar dejar el tiempo, volar. esperando el momento en que regreses. Puedo dejar sin canciones porque tendré la música dentro de mí puedo sé que puedo estar sin ti porque sé que estás conmigo puedo estar, puedo estar. sin Puedo estar sin ti, pero espero no tener que estarlo siempre. Puedo adaptarme a la distancia, pero debo aceptar que me haces falta. Dejar 
emociones Porque tendré la música dentro de mí Puedo, sé que puedo estar sin ti Porque sé que estás conmigo That was the song Puedo Estar Sin Ti by the Peruvian singer-songwriting duo Alejandro y María Laura off of their album Paracaídas. La Raza Chronicles and La Bohemia Productions announces the last chance to hear the Peruvian singer-songwriting duo Alejandro y María Laura. They'll be joined by local Puerto Rican musician María José Montijo this Sunday, January 18th at 7.30 p.m. at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco. For more information on the event, go to the La Bohemia SF or La Raza Chronicles page on Facebook. That's Alejandro y María Laura with María José Montijo this Sunday, January 18th at 7.30 p.m. at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco. Make sure to get there early before tickets sell out. No te preocupes, hay una solución, cambia de vocación. Olvida tu canción y no intentes despegar tus pies del suelo, porque de nuevo puedes caer. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, you can check us out at SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Make sure to like us on Facebook to receive updates on news, arts, culture, and events happening in the Latino community. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima.